Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, continuing the conversation about policing and race in journalism. Last month, we had a conversation about defunding the police and how that's being covered. We're continuing that this week with a roundtable discussion about policing and changes to policing and how journalists should be thinking about it. Both of these stories, the Defending the Police story and this conversation, are part of the new CJR print issue, which is coming out now and should be in your mailboxes soon. And the conversation you're about to hear was recorded for a Q&A and a a roundtable discussion that ran in the print magazine. We're honored to be joined by Michael Denzel-Smith, Josie Duffy-Rice, and Alex Vitale, who are longtime watchers and writers on police issues. Michael, whose voice you'll hear first, is the author of Invisible Man, Got the Whole World Watching, and the forthcoming Stakes is High. He's a fellow at Type Media Center. Duffy Rice is the president of The Appeal and host of the podcast Justice in America. She's a New America fellow, a Type Media fellow, and a Civic Media fellow at USC's Annenberg Innovation Lab. And Alex Vitale is a professor of sociology and a coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. He's the author of City of Disorder and the End of Policing. And let's join in on their conversation. All right. What's up, Alex? What's up, Josie? Hi. Hey, Michael. Hey. Uh, I like that I got to hang out with you guys. It's like the second time. And <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a thing, right? Uh, we have all sort of been making the rounds, uh, in the past few weeks as there's been increased media attention on protest and the demands of the protest with regards to defunding the police and the idea of police abolition. Uh, so we all have worked on those uh, issues before, talked about them, written about them. Uh, obviously, Alex, you have a whole book about the idea of the end of policing. Um, and and this has been a moment in which we just like have, have had an opportunity to speak to a number of different audiences about that very idea. Um, the first question really is just, how are you feeling about just what it means to be uh, having this moment and making the rounds uh, so intensely, just like everywhere? It's a weird time, right? It feels to me like exciting um, to see people really grapple with some of these ideas. It feels overwhelming. Like I... Uh, feel like for years I've kind of, like I've been one of those people like Bible thumping on the corner, um, <laughs> you know, to pe- to like an audience that didn't want to hear it, and so um, or, or I guess a narrow audience. Like it, it has always seemed like I'm talking to the same people, right? The people who kind of already believe. So it's good to see people coming around. I think it's also kind of weird to feel like um, there's any benefit to us for this, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is not actually about us. This is not um, about, you know, this is about people on the street and people in prison and people who are um, involved in the system. And so you don't want to be benefiting from anybody else's pain. Right. And so I think 
that's kind of a complicated thing I'm always grappling with and wanting to make sure I'm not taking up too much space. I mean, mostly it's exhausting. <laughs> I, I've been, you know, working 12 plus hour days since this all began. And, and of course, I've been working hard on these, these issues before that. But uh, it also is, you know, it's a burden. It's, it's an obligation, I feel like, that I need to use my position as, you know, uh, an academic book writer to create as much public space for this movement as I can, to, to push in those arenas that I have access to that maybe, you know, folks on the ground in Minneapolis are not getting access to. You know, I'm trying to, you know, advance these ideas in ways that, that provide political space and, and resources intellectually and also, you know, financially. And there's that tension, right? Like Josie was talking about, like, this is a, this is a moment, an opportunity to be speaking to all of these different audiences, but it's just a matter of, for me at least, it's uh, what kinds of conversations are we having? Uh, because, I, you know, the conversations that, you know, I've participated in with uh, the both of you on on this, uh, on police abolition uh, in these past few weeks, I do feel like we've had space, but it's about, you know, do, do these things sort of get chopped up and then decontextualized and, uh, you know, turned into sound bites and like no one's really understanding actually the issue itself. Uh, it's just, it's sort of like prepackaged in that media way to just sort of like be an introduction to people. And so it's like, what, what more needs to be done then? Like, how do we push this further when we know like the media attention span is so short? I mean, I, I've been actually blown away by the extent to which I've had opportunities to really explain these things in depth. Mm. The number of, you know, hour-long radio shows and hour-long podcasts and hour-long live events, but even having five to seven minutes on national television to lay out what this movement is about. And that, to me, was something that I had never experienced before, pretty much, except with one case with the, the PBS NewsHour. And so at least in the early stages, that first two weeks, there was a kind of openness to like, well, we really would like to hear what this is about. We really want to give people a chance to, to lay it out. I'm similarly kind of amazed at how many people really want to understand what defunding the police could look like or what abolishing the police could look like. And it's really a moment for imagination, which... I think has generally been scarce in the criminal justice economy um, outside of people who work in reform, right? It's very hard for people who don't do this work every day to imagine a new world. And so to see people really engaging in that, I think is major. I'm sure the national kind of conversation won't remain this focused on this issue for forever. And I like keep telling my family, I'm like, I promise you, you'll never have to listen to me <laughs> ever again. <laughs> but I also think that there are moments that kind of open the door to a new way of thinking. You know, Michael, you know, my grandma, like she a couple of weeks ago was just like, this was just like not even on her radar. Right. And mm -hmm. this is like someone who's been doing civil rights work for 
for 70 years and yeah and and now like you can just see kind of her perspective changing and or you know you can see her engaging with these ideas as if they're not so foreign um and so like you know there's no going back right to a world where people don't have this paradigm in their head yeah no certainly um sort of that that thing that happens with uh media coverage particularly of protest um when there are like sexy pictures of you know breaking windows and fires and all of that like there's in the the, the police violence uh there's intense coverage there's there's massive wall-to-wall 24-hour coverage and now that that's sort of even though there's still uh as we speak like protests happening all the time there's still as many if not more people in the streets that attention has been shifted from the conversation around that demand defund the police abolish the police so how do we maintain that and Josie what does it mean to uh, run a media organization and ensure that you're continuing to open up those spaces yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, at the appeal, we really believe that we really believe that mass incarceration is real, right? That it's not a point of contention. That like we obviously have a criminal justice system that's not serving its focus. When the coronavirus hit, we kind of opened up our um, focus, right, from just being about criminal justice to being about other issues, everything from housing and mental health to labor. And the reason was basically like, we're talking about vulnerable people more broadly, how we ensure that this lasts past the moment. I'm not completely positive, but I will say that most of what happens in these systems is local. Most of what happens in policing prisons and prosecutors, which, you know, have always been sort of the focus of my work is local. One of the things that I really hope will kind of come out of this and continue is that local journalists as well as like national outlets right can think of defunding the police as a real possible frame to me whenever people start launching into like media critiques um if they're not within like, the, the industry itself typically what they're talking about is what they see on TV, right? And it's like the, the cable news outlets are the ones that sort of dominate that conversation around like, how is media covering something? How are they doing? They can have that flash in the pan. All of us can like go on TV and talk about abolishing the police and have these discussions. It feels like the the context that's needed to have that conversation um, and and for people to understand it via those spaces is diminished because they are committed to a certain a certain style of television and presentation um, that, you know, it, it's, it's built around quick segments, sound bites, uh, all of that. And then it's also there's just sort of an, under, an, an underlining ideological interest in a certain kind of ideas around reform and what, what have you. What do you do when you're on television knowing that like this is, in, this is maybe one of the few opportunities that someone is going to get to like actually advocate for or discuss with any real knowledge, the idea of uh, abolishing the police, defunding the police. I think that all you can do in those moments, you know, is give the best 
most concise argument you can for having these ideas be seriously considered and to attempt to lift up some of the folks who are doing the actual work on the ground. And let's face it, the only reason that this level of conversation is happening is because of the, the resistance, the uprisings on the ground. And the thing that will put these ideas back into those spaces is not tighter arguments on the part of talking heads like myself. It's going to be, you know, continued intensification uh, and growth of these movements. And so strategically, my focus has always been on, you know, using my voice to directly support those movements in as many ways as I can, because that's that's what's going to really create the political power to, to create the kind of change that we're talking about. Uh, technocratic arguments and well-reasoned treatises are just not going to be enough. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. And that um, cable news is just not constructed for new arguments, right? It's not constructed for stepping out of the, really asking people again to reimagine a world. And then I think, you know, it's hard to overestimate the importance right now of it being an election year and the fact that a lot of these, like, a lot of these people think that um, this is a losing issue, right? And so we're always battling just the court of public opinion, obviously, and, you know, many good ideas that are new don't always pull super high at the beginning. Um, and that's not a concern of mine necessarily, but I think it is a concern of some of these cable news networks. I think yes. this, this rejiggering of the, of the cable TV narrative is definitely tied to the election. I think that, you know, it's clear that CNN and MSNBC are in the uh, Biden camp and they share their, therefore this very narrow analysis of police reform. And they don't want to do anything that is going to show up Biden or make Biden look inadequate. And so that means, and, you know, it's clear how instrumental the coverage is on those two networks. And so they're, they're not interested really in having too many more voices that are undermining, you know, Biden's pro-police message. This is a conversation that has been happening for a long time, right? Like the ideas of abolition uh, with regards to prison industrial complex and uh, you know our our policing. I mean, we can date these back like decades, you mm-hmm. know, and writing and Ruth Wilson Gilmore's writing and, and mm-hmm. addressing organizing around this. And so we are reaching this sort of like zenith moment in which it's like oh miriam kaba can write an op-ed for the new york times saying literally abolish the police right like and that that's the product of so many decades of work but people who are just being introduced to it if they're if they're not interested in good faith right like they 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 just dismiss it out of hand and i'm thinking particularly in in terms of media reaction there were just a couple days there on Twitter where Vox writers were just like, this is a dumb idea and I don't know where it came from and no one has explained it, right? I think those and, days are mostly still going on, but yes. 
No, they absolutely are, right? Like, it's still, but, and I think, you know, Matt Iglesias has been one of the biggest offenders, and I think it's just sort of his uh, sort of predisposition um, to dismiss everything that he's never heard of uh, as silly and unserious. But, um, you, like the thing that you're talking about with like the poll numbers, he's fixated on those polls showing that people don't support the idea of abolishing the police that they literally just heard about. Right. right. Um, you know, it's, it's how is, is it worth addressing that backlash directly or that dismissal directly, or does the focus need to be less on those who don't e- like are not even interested in engaging the conversation uh, and taking it seriously as an ideal, or or like does does the focus need to be on media that like is interested, understands, is curious, and then reaching the people that that then reaches? I can say for myself, you know, I'm not interested in debating Tucker Carlson about this, mm-hmm. but I think there does need to be some pushback on the kind of uh, Vox News centrism that r- relies on misrepresentations of these ideas and these movements. I had to kind of like stop looking at the <laughs> the Vox pushback um, in particular because I found it fairly disingenuous. But I think it also highlights um, something that is very common. So one is poll numbers, like which I understand, I I don't think are irrelevant, right? Like, I wouldn't suggest right now, at this very moment, that Joe Biden make his entire platform about abolishing the police. um, Because I understand that there's like a utilitarian approach to, um, to winning a presidential election versus changing a narrative on the ground, right? So like, it's just, but the thing is, like, poll numbers aren't my job. Right. Mm. <laughs> and I, I, my, my, I'm not, I'm not a campaign manager. What I do um, and what Alex does is like present ideas, right? Where we have an expertise in something we've, Alex has been doing this for years. Like everything I learned, I learned from Miriam Kaba, right? Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Angela Davis. These are the people who have taught me everything. And I know that like, I didn't start out, um, in this field as a prison abolitionist or police abolitionist, right? Like learning is a very valuable skill (laughs) that can help you change your mind. Um, And so to me, like, like abolishing slavery also didn't pull well, right? That's like a large part of the reason we fought a war. (laughs) You know, Martin Luther King didn't pull well. Like historically, when we look back on things and think, how could we have had that system? Well, we had that system because the majority of people enjoyed and supported that system, right? And so the fact that it doesn't pull well is just not um, not relevant to to my own approach to thinking about this work, right? We're asking, this is a big idea. And asking people to change their mind about a big idea sometimes takes longer than three weeks. <laughs> you know, it's not shocking. Um, but I'll also say that I think part of the reason that so many of these um, – so many of these critiques seem frustrating to me is because they are kind of sheathed in this illusion of intellectualism and uh, evidence-based information that I think is not actually 
reflective of anything true. This is a constant thing. Well, crime goes up. Well, who's, well, what crime are we talking about and who's measuring crime and how do we talk about crime? Right. And this, because most crime we know isn't even reported. Right. And so the idea that we have these like very solid numbers of what's happening in a community and what's happening in a neighborhood and how people feel because we have some FBI statistics um, is just not reflective of how people live their lives. And this is often what happens when people get wrapped up in the, the, the studies instead of the lived experiences of people, right? Is that it's very easy to, to try to measure the good versus the bad of these policies by looking at, you know, well, for every dollar we put in of crime prevention, we get $1.63 of social benefits out. There's no way to really make these assessments in a way that reflects the experience of people on the ground and that, that that can isolate crime from the police and understanding of how we think about community and understanding of how we think about community justice. Um, understanding of how we think about accountability. All of these are really basic ideas you have to interrogate to even have a real conversation about police abolition. And I don't think that interrogation is happening. What they seem to be saying is, hey, we're just asking the real tough questions. But the the truth is that they're not. (laughs) Because the real tough questions are ones that don't have an answer here and are result in some uncertainty and make us all have to question everything we sort of understand and know about um, about crime in America and safety in America. And I think that's a tall order for some of these people and that they're not willing to do that. Um, and that's what I find particularly frustrating. I mean, this is about a political economic viewpoint that mm-hmm. says that it's not appropriate for us to actually have universal health care that we're not allowed to actually have adequate housing for people because that would require reigning in the power of economic elites, that this would require completely rethinking a tax system that subsidizes the already most wealthy people in society. So it's not just a kind of willful ignorance. It's the defending of a kind of rancid class war against large swaths of the American public that is carried out in part by our reliance on policing to paper over these social problems. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really key part here, right? What we're saying is that policing is part of a much bigger structure that um, relies on the control and the subjugation of black people and poor people in particular and has for decades and that we've gotten used to that and that with if we were to grapple with what it means to not rely on policing to to have that control, we'd have to have other conversations. I think they are conversations people aren't willing to have, right? I think that like when this feels theoretical to you, those conversations feel too big and too unnecessary and too leftist and too, you know, pie in the sky. I think what we're saying is they're not. They're actually crucial um, for for us to kind of evolve as a country, right? And that this isn't a thought exercise. So I I, I agree that it um, it reflects a sort of laziness disguised as pragmatism that I think is is um, lamentable 
um, and, and, and someone who's, who, and these people who are supposed to be kind of leaders of, of, of thought leaders here. Josie talking about the ways in which we talk about crime, right. And the, how laden that is with so much, um, so many preconceived notions of uh, who commits crime, what constitutes crime, the, the sort of like white supremacist and, and gendered notions of around what is serious crime versus what isn't. The way that it becomes sort of central to the politics is the 60s are happening and there are uprisings in urban areas. People are frustrated with the uh, lack of jobs, poverty, police violence, which becomes so so often the sort of ignition for uh, these uprisings. Um, and then you have simultaneously sort of that the building of the suburbs in white flight and the separation of uh, the suburbs from uh, cities. And then the, the, the consequent fear of white people that the violence that they see will encroach upon their safety, right? Look in their um, suburban enclaves. Uh, and so you have this, the, the, the idea then being born during the Johnson administration, like the war on crime has to take place, right? Like we need to eradicate crime. And that gets taken to another level with sort of uh, Nixon and like a number of uh, big city mayors that come to power through the idea of law and order. And that gets translated again and again through war on drugs and Reagan uh, and gets adopted by the Democratic Party. Just to say that this is sort of like a bipartisan idea that there's mm-hmm. too much crime uh, taking place and crime, that term being applied to certain people. So um, I say all that to ask what gets lost in particular when these conversations get subsumed into uh, electoral politics. I think what you're getting at is the social construction of crime and criminality, right? That we have a complete kind of misunderstanding of and that the fact is that politicians have been wielding this um, as kind of a shortcut to an election win for decades and it's not just um, presidential candidates and it's not just congressional it's every single level of government um, on every you know in almost every single position right from judges to city council people mayors and obviously DAs and sheriffs and um, state legislators. And I mean, it's just like the, the kind of fear mongering and um, projection of what it means, what crime is, how it's solved and what it means have been consistent figures in the politics of the past. You know, like you said, I mean, you know, from the 50s, 60s, and it's not obviously separate from the fact that like, this is happening, you know, we start seeing cops in schools right around the time of Brown v. Board, right? We, um, we start this war on crime in the Johnson administration, um, you know, really articulated in the Johnson administration right around the time that the Civil Rights Act happens. And you can't really um, decouple racism from the conversation about crime in this country's history. And you certainly can't, you can't, um, separate partisanship from the conversation about crime in this country. Mm. But look, it's really salient, right? Fear is a very, very salient emotion, a very salient driver. And 
I recognize that as a parent, right? Like I spend half my time worried about something happening to my kid that like statistically is just as likely as him getting abducted by aliens, right? You, it's very, um, when, when, you know, when you feel like your safety might be at risk, it's very difficult to have a reasonable conversation about statistics with people, right? That is one of the most uphill battles I think that we, we fight. I do think that arming people with the truth is a helpful defense in many ways here. It's very interesting to see people's reactions when you tell them crime is lower on average than it's been in 50 years, right? For many people in many communities in this country, almost most communities in this country, you could set your children out on the street and say, take me, <laughs> put a sign by your kid that says, take me, nobody's taking your kid, right? You know, this, this idea of at any second in this country, anything could happen to me is actually just not reflected in the numbers um, in the sense, in, in that sort of sense, right? Like maybe your car window gets broken into, or maybe, um, maybe there's interpersonal kind of conflict, right? But the, the random violence, the stuff that we think of as you know, um, the random crime, the stuff that we think of being really, really pervasive is just actually not um, and so talking about crime, I think people think of crime as like a very solid category with very solid numbers, with very solid indicators, and it's not. And I think that's scary for people in many ways. Um, but it's also an opportunity to kind of shift our electoral politics away from um, allowing elected officials to get by with, with doing nothing but locking people up, Right and saying they kept us safe because the conversation we're having is what really is safety, right? Mm. What really keeps us safe? And is it the back end of policing? Is it the back end of prisons? Or is it making sure kids have really good schools, making sure they have school programs, making sure they have parks, making sure someone picks up the garbage, right? What is it that provides people with safety? I think in large part, it's dignity um, an opportunity. And if we don't provide those two things, then we're fighting a losing battle. And it's the same one that politicians have said they're fighting for years. You know, it's, it's super important to emphasize that this is a public safety movement led by people who have experienced the profound lack of safety in their lives and for whom, you know, policing has not been the solution to their safety problems. But there's a larger conversation that needs to be had about how we understand harm and risk. And the the electronic media, both local and national in the United States, right, is funded by corporate advertising. And it's important to them that harm and risk be conceptualized in a particular way that absolves corporate America of any responsibility for these problems. So that if General Electric owns, you know, national media directly through purchase or indirectly through advertising, we're not going to hear that much about how they're poisoning communities and the direct harms that that causes and the, the need to ameliorate that. You know, look at the issue of climate change and how how poorly that's been covered because it implicates the people who pay for that news to go on the air. 
And that means that the harms that get talked about on the local news, on the national news, are harms that are framed as being the result of individual and group moral failure and inadequacy rather than structural failures and housing markets and labor markets and healthcare markets because that would implicate those advertisers. So that is, you know, always been a major factor in the kind of if it bleeds, it leads approach to how we understand crime and safety. And part of this is about, you know, the need to, you know, lift up non-corporate sponsored media so that we have a chance to explain these ideas more fully. So what are the prospects of pushing a Democratic Party, and in particular as they've uh, selected as their their standard bearer, Joe Biden, architect of the 94 crime bill, uh, what are the prospects of pushing them to have a substantial conversation around defunding the police? None. (laughs) I'm very pessimistic about this. I mean, I mean, who thought a month ago that that we would be even having this conversation? I mean, these movements were happening on the ground in cities across the country. And we were many of us out there working to support that local organizing. But no one that I work with thought that we would be in direct conversation with the Biden folks about, you know, discussing abolitionist frames for understanding the criminal justice system. So it's great that that those conversations are happening and 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 there are people in Congress who are taking these ideas seriously and we're going to I think see some results from that, but I I think our ability to have a major impact on this national election is quite limited and strategically I continue to put most of my effort into building the local organizing. Yeah, I would agree that, I mean, I don't think like any shift is impossible. Certainly I agree with Alex that like, you know, come November, it's not going to like defunding the police is not going to be on the table. And I also agree with Alex that like, um, you know, that's not where defunding the police happens. Like obviously national effort, national narratives have salience. And so for that reason, like focusing our efforts on national politics, at least being aware of the national conversation is critical. But policing, again, it's local, right? Criminal justice is local. And what community A needs in West Virginia is not going to be what the community needs in Baltimore is not going to be what the community needs in Atlanta. It's not going to be what they need in Oakland. And so when we think about the potential for a conversation around defunding the police, I think, um, we focus on the incredible work that people are doing locally, right? The incredible people who are thinking about this um, issue and, and um, build the momentum there, which is what's, which where it has largely been building. You know, I'm reminded of $15 minimum wage. When I graduated from law school in 2013, like $15 minimum wage was a crazy idea. Nobody, was talking about $15 minimum wage, except, you know, a couple of like fringe, you know, activists, labor activists, right? And 
And then it got pick up in Seattle and it got pick up in San Francisco and it got pick up in New York and it, you know, and then suddenly that's a national movement. And now here we are in 2020 where $15 minimum wage is like a reasonable position for a democratic politician to take without being, um, without, you know, being laughed off stage. So these shifts are possible. I don't know if they're five months from now possible, but they're certainly long-term possible. And I think we're seeing kind of a chink in the armor of, um, of po- the, the culture of policing at this exact moment where people are starting, not enough, not a majority probably, but people are starting to think, hey, maybe these people have too much power and they're not using it responsibly. And maybe we're um, giving them too much responsibility for people who have not proven that they can that they are capable of that responsibility, you know, of capable of maintaining that responsibility, right? And so um, there is potential, but I think all like like so much, all of this is, is a groundswell movement, right? So you can read an edited transcript of this conversation in the new CJR print magazine. It's called Reckoning, and it's about how we are rethinking the coverage of a presidential campaign in 2020. A lot of the stories are online at CJR.org, and if you subscribe to CJR, you'll get our beautiful print version of the print magazine in your mailbox soon, and you can do that by going to CJR.org and signing up to be a subscriber. Otherwise, you can read all the other media news at CJR, including our daily email newsletter, The Media Today. Thank you, and see you next time.